But uh, this morning, uh, I'm bringing a message on peace. And uh, we've been talking about, um, we've been going through the themes of Advent. And we've looked at hope, we've looked at joy, we've looked at love. And we're going to be looking at peace this morning. And I think um, just because of how our schedule goes, how, how we do this Christmas concert every every year, a not-so-silent night, I kind of always end up preaching a little bit later in the Advent uh, calendar. And this is actually the third time that I've preached on peace, a <laughs> third time in a row. So I was racking my brain trying to figure out, how am I going to talk about peace in a different way? Uh, how am I going to talk about peace in a way that I haven't talked about already? But thankfully, um, the well of God's word is, is deep. And... and it's, it's so much deeper than even three sermons can touch. So um, we're going to dive into this this morning. I'd like us to, to open up to the book of Luke. We're going to be looking uh, at Luke chapter 2. And our main text is actually Hebrews 10, but I, I want us to look at Luke 2 uh, to start out this morning. So we're going to be looking briefly here at, at what the angels say to the shepherds when they when they come and they announce this message of peace. So starting in Luke 2, verse 8, it says, That night there were shepherds staying in the field nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. So we need to look carefully at what the angel says here. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to those with whom God is pleased. Something, something that I like to do when I'm reading the Bible, and especially when I'm preparing a sermon, is to, when I'm looking at a text, is to ask questions. <clears throat> And there are a few questions we can ask here in this passage. Um, First of all, why is peace associated with the coming Messiah? Why is peace announced for people on earth? And why is this peace only for those with whom God is pleased? Excuse me. The first question I want to look at is why is peace specifically announced for people on earth? If you open to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, one of the first things you see is that mankind is actually in rebellion against God. And we see it all through the Old Testament, beginning with Adam and Eve and continuing in God's own people, Israel, who who are the people that he has called to be his own. And we see Israel continue this pattern of rebellion and repentance, rebellion and repentance until God finally has enough. And Pastor James just preached on this, right? Lamentations is a book all about the consequences of sin, the consequence of rebellion against God. 
In the Old Testament, we see, we see a lot of story, we see a lot of narrative. And throughout this narrative, we, we many times see people like you and me continually choosing themselves over God. It starts with Adam and Eve, right? And the temptation, it's not just because the fruit looks good. It's a lot deeper than that. The temptation for them is that they will be like God. You won't die, the serpents replied to the woman. This is Genesis 3. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So, so the Old Testament takes us through this narrative of mankind's continual temptation to be his or her own God. And in the New Testament, the apostles, Peter, Paul, and John, they take this narrative of the Old Testament, they take the truths found in the Old Testament and also what Jesus has just done, and they kind of package it for us to understand. Paul says in Romans 3, he says, for we have... Sh- We have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin, as the scriptures say, and he's referring to the Old Testament. No one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. There's no fear of God. Why? Because the pride and the arrogance of sin says that you don't need God. In fact, you're better off without him, it says. We are born with this predisposition to selfishness. We are born selfish, and we know this, right? Children don't have to learn how to be selfish. Um, We have inherited Adam's sin. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So back to our first question, why is peace announced for people on earth? Well, because mankind is in need of peace. Mankind is born rebellious to God and to his ways. And there's no peace in rebellion. Isaiah 63.10 talks about this rebellion that Israel in particular is guilty of. It says, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. There's no peace for the enemies of God. How can there be? Romans 8, 7 says, the mind set on the flesh, on the sinful nature, is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Mankind is born rebellious to God and to his ways. And again, there's no peace in rebellion. And, and so the angel specifies earth because that's where mankind lives. But unfortunately, after we leave earth, after we die, there's no second chance. We get one chance at this peace. We get one chance to repent 
and to turn to God. Hebrews 9.27 says, people are destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. The good news is that people who are still alive and breathing have hope. They still have a chance if they will turn from their rebellion and they will embrace God and his ways. Another question about the angel's message in Luke 2 um, is, is why is peace associated with the Messiah? Why, when announcing the coming of Messiah, does the angel announce peace? And the answer is that real peace is not found apart from the Messiah. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus came to do. There was a problem of rebellion. Because of Adam, we were were born into rebellion. And remember, Romans 8, Paul says, even if we wanted to, we couldn't follow God or his ways because of that rebellion in our hearts, right? The mind is set on the flesh, meaning the sinful nature, which we've all inherited, and, and we're not able to follow God because of it. And so there's a problem that needs a solution, or rather, there's a planet of people that needs someone to save them. And you could call this person that we need a savior. You could call him a deliverer. You could call him Messiah, even. By the way, Messiah literally means anointed one. Jesus was appointed. He was chosen. He was anointed to bring peace. And by the way, he was to do, and, and the way that he was to, to do that is what we're going to look at in, in our main text this morning, which is Hebrews 10. So why don't you turn with me to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 10. We're going to be spending the rest of our time there. So the author of Hebrews, begin, at the beginning of Hebrews 10, has just finished describing how Jesus' death on our behalf was a sacrifice for us, for sin. And the author describes how in the past, Jewish priests had offered sacrifices every day, day in and day out. And yet the only sacrifice that can truly wash away sin is the perfect sacrifice of the Messiah, it says. Daily sacrifices are no longer required because of that one sacrifice that Jesus has done. And the, the, the author of Hebrews says in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And I'll stop there for a minute. Remember, the angel declares peace when he announces the coming of Messiah, the bringer of peace. And how is the Messiah the bringer of peace? How does he bring peace? He brings peace through what he has done. Our fellowship, our intimacy with God was broken when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. Jesus came as a baby. 
And he lived on this earth and he died on the cross to restore our fellowship and our intimacy, that, that fellowship and that intimacy that we originally had with God in paradise, in the garden, before Adam and Eve sinned. Adam and Eve, before they sinned, had what we now have in Christ. We have been restored through Jesus to this original state. And this is exactly what Hebrews 10 is telling us. If you are a believer, you now have access to God because peace with God has been restored. It's no wonder that the angels were celebrating and glorifying God um, and just singing to him. Peace has been restored, and that's what the angels were proclaiming to the shepherds that night just outside of Bethlehem. Peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. And with, with whom God is pleased, meaning all those who, who call themselves followers of Jesus, all those whose hearts have been sprinkled clean and have been washed with pure water, Hebrews 10, 22 says. This peace is available to all who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that he was raised from the dead. So, why then would we here who profess Jesus, why would we who have had our sins forgiven, who have had intimacy and fellowship with God restored, why would we not experience peace? I mean, obviously we go through seasons that are very stressful, seasons that are very hard, but why would a, a, why would a follower of Jesus, what would be the reason that a follower of Jesus would not experience peace the majority of the time. And I think there's a clue here in Hebrews 10. We read up to verse 23. I'll read that again. It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I think peace is very much tied to hope. In fact, I would say that we won't find peace until our hope is in the right place. So how do we define hope? Um, there's, a, there's a dictionary called the Bible Dictionary, Baker's Bible Dictionary. It says hope is to trust in, to wait for, to look for, or desire something or someone, or to expect something beneficial in the future. So, so hope is expectation. Hope is desiring. But at the same time, hope is trusting in that something that we are waiting for that is not yet here. Christ has come, we have been restored to God through him, and yet we still live in a broken world. We still live in a world that is hostile and rebellious toward God. And even though we know this, we know that the world is broken, uh, um, it's what we see, it's right in front of us, right? 24-7, it's tangible, it surrounds us, it's, it's inescapable. And I think the unfortunate reality is that it's easy for us, easier for us to put our hope in things that are seen than in things that are unseen. And oftentimes, the sad reality is that we do put our hope in the world. And I think a way to see where our hope actually is, is, is with a little reflection. Look at these sentences with me. How would you finish these sentences? I won't be happy until... I won't be able to find rest until. 
I won't find purpose until. How would you finish these sentences? Are you living for the weekend? I won't be happy until I'm free on the weekend. Or are you living for a vacation? I won't be able to find rest until I'm on vacation. Um, or maybe it's money. I won't be happy until I have enough money. Maybe it's a career. I won't be able to find purpose until I have that job or that career. And, and it's tricky because our hope can be tied up in the things that we actually need. It can be tied up in our passions, our desires, our gifting. And these can be good passions. These, these can be good desires. These can be God-given gifts. And, but uh, things like being gifted musically or, or artistically is a good thing. Trying to establish a career maybe as a doctor or an NGO is a great career. Taking a break from work is important. Having enough money in the bank to pay our bills is a good thing, right? These things are not bad things, but the temptation is always to put our hope in the things that we can see, to trust these things, to bank on these things, to carry us into the future. I have money in the bank, so I'm good. I have a good job, so I can rest in that fact. I'm so happy that I have the next two weeks off. Again, these are things where, where we are expecting to find, are these things where we're expecting to find happiness and rest? Because guess what? Before you even realize, and I'm not trying to be a downer here, your vacation is going to be over. Um, that money in the bank is going to be spent, and, and your job is not guaranteed. This sounds a little fatalistic, but what if your school burned down tomorrow? Uh, what if your Korean visa was revoked? What if your health took a downturn? And I'm not trying to scare you, I'm not trying to worry you, but we put our hope in these things. And, and these things are honestly temporary because the things that are right in front of us are the easiest things to put our hope in. But the Bible tells us that hope that is seen is no hope at all. In fact, Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that part of faith is hope. It says, faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, so what do we do? We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so when our hope is in these seen things, the Bible says that you may experience temporary hope, but lasting hope comes from what is unseen. It's not right in front of us. And our, our hope is very much tied to what we're living for. Maybe you are putting your hope in some of these things. Maybe you're working for that 401k. You've been saving for that new car. You're looking for a different job. Maybe your hope is even in something like having a spouse. And please hear me, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be working towards things, that we shouldn't have goals. We should. We should have goals. But there's a difference between being wise and having goals and orienting your whole life around these things. When my whole life is about that savings account or my whole life is about that career 
or that job or even marriage, when we finish that sentence by saying, I won't be happy until I have that, then we know that our hope is in the wrong place. And again, I'm not saying we shouldn't save money. I'm not saying we shouldn't work hard in our jobs. I'm not saying that marriage isn't worth it. Marriage is is beautiful. God created this union, but we can't find hope in things that are seen. We can't find hope in another human being. As beautiful and as God-ordained as marriage and family are, we don't find lasting hope there. For those of you who are single, marriage is challenging. Marriage is, is something that you have to work at. It's hard work. It's not a Hollywood movie. And, and there can be joy there. There can be contentment there. But one day, <clears throat> one day I'm going to die, and my wife is going to die. And whatever pleasure we find in this world will fade. It's a reality. Things in this world do not last. They are temporary. And that should be sad to you because it is sad. That's why nothing, it, nothing that is seen is worth putting our hope in. If we don't continually remind ourselves of this, that the world is corrupt, that the world is fallen, that the world is not all that there is, and that there is something better, something unseen, then we will continually put our hope in the world because this world is what we see. Remember, faith is the assurance of things unseen. So, so how do we do that? How do we put our hope in things that are unseen? How do we put our hope in the unseen? Well, scripture is always the best place to start. Actually, let me take that back. Going to God is always the best place to start. Going to God in prayer and asking him to show us what to do asking him to guide us, and then going to scripture uh, because he reveals truth to us through his word. Back to a verse we looked at earlier, 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We need that reminder And we are reminded when we go to God in prayer and when we turn to his word. Remember Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, what we just read, it says that Jesus has opened a way for us to to draw near to God, to be able to come to the Father directly, anywhere and anytime. And many times as believers, we take this fact, this reality for granted. Whether you were in a good place or you were hurting, whether you are stuck in sin, you can go to God because of what Jesus has done. Not because of anything you've done, not because you've had a good week, because, what, because of what Jesus has done. And remember verse 23 of Hebrews 10 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This is our hope that God came to us. Jesus came as a baby and lived on earth. And then he died on the cross to restore that relationship and that intimacy that we originally had with God in paradise, in the garden. Remember, as believers, uh, remember, we as believers have what Adam and Eve had before they sinned. 
Jesus has restored us. This is what we put our hope in. Not only what Christ has done, but in Christ himself. And in what he will complete when he returns. And so we remind ourselves, or we are continually reminded of where our hope should be when we have communion with God, when we have fellowship with him, when we spend time with him in prayer. And yet, because we live in a fallen world, because we are surrounded by temptation and brokenness, we need help, we need to be reminded. Reminded even to go to God. We forget to even go to him. And maybe that's because when we do, it's not what we imagine it to be, right? It's sometimes not the time of refreshment that we imagine. It's not always a big spiritual event when we go to him. It's not, it's not what we're expecting is what I'm trying to say. We live in a world where we can get what we want almost immediately. It's a convenient world, but that's not how God works. He's not convenient. And so we often go to him expecting something to happen, and when nothing does, we're disappointed. And sometimes we just give up for a while, right? God's not answering my prayer, so why bother? Or I don't feel anything when I pray, so what's the point? The problem with thinking like this is that God is not a thing that we get something out of. He's a person. And like with any other person, relationship takes investment. It takes time. It takes, well, surrender. There's give and take, right? Something that we, we need to understand about prayer and our, our communion with God is that when we first begin to place our trust in God, there's excitement. We feel what has taken place. Weight is lifted. There's freedom. There's hope for what God's going to do next. There's joy and there's expectation. And I think when we first become believers, we need that excitement. We need it at the beginning. We need to understand what God has done and we need to feel it. But I also believe that we go through seasons and sometimes we go through seasons where we don't feel anything. In fact, it doesn't feel like God is even there. And I want to tell you if you're in that place that God is there. But God needs us to understand that faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen in the world, but what, on what is unseen. God is there. Maybe we don't feel that he is there, but he is. We can't see that he is there, but we hold fast, we hold tightly to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. There's another translation of this verse that I like. It says, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. God can be trusted to keep all his promises. And Hebrews 13.5, in Hebrews 13.5, he promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. So I think, one, I think this is one of the reasons that followers of Jesus would be missing out on the peace that he has come to bring. But this peace that was announced by the angel 
is full peace. What happened in paradise in the garden with Adam and Eve was not just broken intimacy and fellowship with God. It was broken intimacy and fellowship between Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, they hide and God confronts them and and says in verse 11, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam says, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Adam, who was standing next to Eve when the serpent lied to her, didn't say a thing as Eve reached for the fruit and then shared it with him. And when God confronts him, he blames her. He blames Eve. This is a serious shift in their relationship. This is, this is brokenness. And we see it in their children. Actually, one of them murders the other. This is not peace. This is brokenness. And so Jesus comes to offer peace between us and God, but he also comes to offer peace between ourselves, between each other. This is full peace that is offered. And so we can't experience this full peace until two things happen. Number one, our hope is in what is unseen, Jesus and his promises. And number two, until we understand and live out what Jesus has done. And we understand and live out what Jesus has done when we understand that our intimacy and our fellowship with God has been restored. That we are now temples of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit lives in us. And now understanding this, we go out into the world communicating what we know, what we now know and understand. We, we communicate this through our actions, through our lives. And we do this, we go out into the world with God's Spirit in us. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live for Jesus in front of the world. But not only that, we understand and live out what Jesus has done when we understand and live out that our intimacy and our fellowship with each other has been restored. We are all equals here today. We are all sinners saved by grace. And we are all children of God. I want us to look at Hebrews 10 one more time. Jesus has opened a way for us to draw near to God. We have been made clean through his blood. And then the author challenges us to hold on to this hope that we affirm, that we believe. But he does it by saying, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. How do we do that? We recognize what Jesus has done, who he is, that he is the Messiah sent to save us. We recognize intellectually what this hope is, but how do we do it? How do we hold tightly to this hope? And I think the next couple of verses give us the answer. Verse 24 says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And I'm using a different translation here on purpose. Most of you are probably used to the ESV, which says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Both are good translations. I just really want us to consider what this means. So here's another question. How do we stir one another up? How do we motivate one another to acts of love and good works? 
You know, we are all so different, especially in an international church like this. We come from different backgrounds, different countries, different traditions. And unfortunately, I can't tell you how to motivate one another. And clearly, the author of Hebrews isn't giving us any details about that either. Verse 24 says, let us think of ways to motivate one another. We're actually supposed to figure it out ourselves in our own unique ways. God is the creator of the universe, and therefore God is a creative being. And if we are made in his image, then we are also creative. And we're told to be creative here. Let us think of ways to motivate each other. You see, when we're meditating on the scriptures, which is it's very different than, than what the world teaches about meditation, which is to empty your mind. Christian meditation is filling your mind. When we're meditating on a passage like this, when we're reading it, we're thinking about what it means. How can I stir up my friends at Freedom Village to love and good works? How can I motivate my brothers and sisters to acts of love and good works? Maybe you need to, maybe you need to, to pray for someone here today. Maybe you need to ask someone to pray for you. Maybe you need to ask someone to go with you to, to serve the homeless. You're thinking, I don't, I don't have the courage to do that alone. And that's fine. We need each other. That's why we're here. It's not just to sing and to hear God's word, which, both of which are important, but we, we need these relationships and we need to be actively helping each other actively motivating and encouraging each other. Let's look at the next verse. Verse 25 says, and let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. And friends, we are closer to that return than the person who wrote this book 2,000 years ago. And if they had a sense of urgency back then, what should our sense of urgency be now? Something happens when we come together. I don't know if it's because we are all little temples of the Holy Spirit filling a room, or if it's because we're, we're a room full of like-minded people with the same purpose of glorifying God with our lives. But God works when we come together. When we, when we gather to celebrate a new believer getting baptized, which we're going to do in January, when we remember what our Lord has done for us by taking communion together, when we come together to celebrate the birth of our Savior, God is glorified. And then when we go out into the world together to glorify God and make him known, something happens, something that none of us could do on our own. If you're you're watching from home today, maybe you're sick or your children are sick, Uh, or you're on vacation, that's one of the reasons we still do an online service. But if you're watching from home, you're missing out on what happens here when we gather together. Something mysterious, something bigger than us happens when we gather together. When When the angel proclaimed that evening just outside of Bethlehem, glory to God in the highest and peace to those with whom he is well pleased, it was and it is a message for the whole world. But ultimately, this full peace is for us, for those with whom God is well-pleased. Some translations say, 
peace among those with whom he is pleased. So which translation is right? Is it peace to those or peace among those? And and I think it's both. Peace Peace from God to those with whom he is well pleased and peace among those with whom he is well pleased. This peace is offered to you today, but we're not gonna experience that peace until our hope is in the right place. So where is your hope? Is it in the Messiah who who we can actually have a relationship with, but who right now anyway we cannot see? Or is it in things we can see, things the world offers, things that are temporary? Are you experiencing peace? Where is your hope? Let's, Let's bow our heads together. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come up.